0: That uh, for some may make us feel a little uncomfortable, okay? Um, We're going to be talking about church discipline. And uh, as the scriptures say, nobody really likes discipline, you know, when we go through it, right? But it's good. It it teaches us. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, church discipline, what that looks like, what uh, the purpose of church discipline is. Okay, we're also going to be looking at the, the topic of forgiveness, and how the Lord uh, would direct us to act towards those that have offended us or who have sinned against us. And so we see it's really a continuation all of Matthew chapter 18. If you remember last week, you know, we started getting into the uh, I- idea that they were talking about greatness. And he said, hey, you need to become like, like a child you know, and be humble. And then he started talking about just the seriousness of sin. Um, and saying, hey, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it, it's not very good for you. Um, and so we, continuing with that idea of, hey, what what do we do when someone sins? How do we respond? And so that's what we're going to be talking about and looking at this morning. Okay? Well, we... Uh, have a lot of verses to cover, so we're going to jump right in, okay? Uh, starting off in verses, uh, we'll start off reading verses 15 through 20 just to get us started. As I mentioned, I do have a desire to get through the entire chapter. And so uh, let's stand and uh, read this morning's uh, opening portion at least. We'll read verses 15 through 20 and uh, ask God to, to bless our time as well, okay? Let's, pre- uh, let's read verses 15 through 20, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is is speaking. Uh, If you have a red-letter Bible, you know it's Him speaking. But Jesus is speaking and He says this, "...Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them... "'Tell it to the church. "'But if he refuses even to hear the church, "'let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. "'Assuredly, I say to you, "'Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, "'and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. "'Again, I say to you, "'that if two of you agree on earth "'concerning anything that they ask, "'it will be done for them by my Father in heaven.' For where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, just for this opportunity to, to gather together, to spend time in your word, just thanking you, uh, Lord, for that time of worship that we already have had. Um, Lord, just knowing that your presence is here with us. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you would Uh, continue to work within us, uh, work in us individually, work in us uh, corporately as a church body. Father, we want to not just come and kind of check the box. Yeah, we went to church today. Lord, we want to meet with you and we want to hear from you and we want you to uh, continue to do that work that you've begun in us, Lord, knowing that you're going to promise to complete it one day. And so, Father, we want to surrender ourselves to you, surrender ourselves to uh, your word, And Lord, obviously, we are here uh, in this portion of Scripture at this time. Lord, I, I trust that it's for a reason. And so, Father, would you speak to our hearts, lead and guide our time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. In these opening verses regarding a... A brother. Now, when I say brother, realize when I uh, and, and Jesus as well when he says when a brother sins, we could put slash sister. Uh, it's not necessarily only guys that sin. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, and so the idea when we talk about today, I'll be talking about when a brother does this, when a brother does that. Realize that we're we're talking about brothers and sisters uh, collectively. But here in these opening verses regarding a brother that is that sins against you and the appropriate actions to take, I'd like to note that first and foremost, the end goal for such actions is reconciliation. Okay? To gain your brother, as it states in verse 15. Okay, The goal in confronting a brother or sister is not to win an argument. Okay? It's not to to be right or to prove a point The goal is, is not to make them feel as bad as you did when they sinned against you. And the goal is not to justify your own feelings for why you feel the way you do. The goal is, and always must be, to gain your brother. To be reconciled. That our relationship would be mended. That is the goal when we talk about church discipline. Okay, that is always the priority, that is always the focus, that we will be able to gain our brother and be reconciled. Okay? Too often I believe that when we confront people we feel uh, that have wronged us or that have sinned against us, we do so with a sense of, of revenge um, or, or, uh, and not one of reconciliation. Okay? We feel like, man, they've wronged us and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them know. <laughs> and, and we want to show them how much it hurt. Uh, what they did to us. So we want to, to give them, maybe we, say, we want to give them a taste of their own medicine, you know, how they did me wrong. And uh, we want to prove to them uh, that they, they were wrong, that we were right, and it shouldn't be that way. Okay. Don't seek revenge. Don't think, seek retribution. We need to seek reconciliation. Okay. Reconciliation, being brought back together, having that relationship uh, mended. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We want to, to mend that which has been broken, or that which has been wounded, when we have a brother or a sister that is sinned against us. In fact, that is what the word restore means in Galatians 6 1. Okay, when it says to uh, uh, restore the, such a one in a spirit of gentleness, uh, the Greek word for restore—it's actually a medical. It could be used in a medical sense to mean to to set a broken bone, and so you imagine what it would be like for a doctor to set a broken bone. There's gentleness, there's tenderness. It's it's painful, okay, and you have to do it carefully and and tenderheartedly, okay. A, a sinning brother is like a broken bone in the body of Christ that needs to be mended, it, it needs to be cared for and restored, and so that the whole body that the whole church body can be healthy again. I also 'd like to note that the method by which we should approach these individuals that we feel that have sinned against us Galatians six one it states that we should do it with a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is an expression of compassion. And and I believe that we must remember what Ephesians 4.15 teaches us when we're going to go to our brother who we feel has wronged us and sinned against us, and we need to remember that it teaches us about speaking the truth in love. When we approach someone, we do it gently. We do it compassionately, lovingly. And at the same time, we do it Truthfully and honestly. The best way to uh, approach a brother or sister that has sinned against you is to speak to them the truth in love. And and it's so important that we keep that proper balance uh, of truth and love because if we come in and we speak the truth without any love we, we usually end up making the matter worse. We go on the offensive we really don't care uh, about the words that we use. We say things like, yeah, the truth hurts, doesn't it? You ever said that before? I have to admit I've said that before, right? The truth hurts. When, when we do this, we, we have missed the goal uh, of reconciliation. We've turned it into to retribution. We've turned it into revenge. We're gonna, I'm going to do you wrong like you did me wrong. And we've missed the goal. If we come to a person with the thought of of just being loving them and and not speaking honestly, well, we, we often let our brother or sister continue in sin. We don't correct the sin. And when we do that, we're really not loving them at all. We may say we're loving them, but we're not. How can we say we love someone but allow them to continue in sin? That's not love. Hebrews teaches us that the Lord disciplines us because He loves us. And so we see here, when approaching a brother or sister, we do so with the goal of reconciliation, and we do so uh, with the, by the means of speaking the truth lovingly and honestly. Okay? That's, the, that's the prerequisite. Okay, We'll get into the actual steps here now. But just realize that the goal of church discipline is reconciliation. The means by which we must do it is speaking the truth in love. Okay? Alright, verses 15-17, through they give to us a a four-step process when it comes to approaching and dealing with a brother or sister in sin. And so we're going to explain those four steps to you, okay? According to verse 15, if a brother sins against you, you are to first go to them and privately discuss the issue between the two of you. This, you know, it seems so basic, but you'd be surprised that how many people don't follow this very simple first step? There are two verbs in this first step. Go and tell. And those are the two things that often don't happen in these types of manners, in these types of situations. We either don't go to our brother, and in so doing we we harbor a grudge against our brother and allow uh, matters to only worsen as they fester inside of us. Or we don't tell them privately. Okay, sometimes we'll tell, but we just don't tell them. And, and we don't do it privately. Instead, we go around telling a whole bunch of other people. Seemingly trying to garnish support for our cause. Or trying to perhaps even ruin a, a brother's reputation. Or to put their reputation uh, on, in darkness. Both these actions are, are counterproductive to achieving the desired goal, which, as we stated, is reconciliation. Okay? If we don't go and we don't tell, we're not going to be reconciled. Okay? We must be willing to go to our brother, as we noted, speaking the truth in love, and explain the fault that was experienced by you. It's been my experience that when people do things this way, They simply say, hey, you go to a brother and say, hey, you know, you did this, you said this, and and I felt slighted, I felt like it was an attack on me, or I felt this or that. I have found that more often than not, okay, that the the fault was not intended. That." That uh, there was a misunderstanding or maybe a lack of information or a communication breakdown that was to blame it. And the matter can be easily resolved. You say, hey, you said this and I, this is how I took it and I really was offended by that. And they said, oh, I didn't mean it that way at all, you know. And this is what I was talking about. And so we're able to easily resolve issues by just taking this very simple first step of just going to them, speaking to them privately, and explaining the situation. And I found, have found that oftentimes... Step one is all we need. We need to go and just talk to them honestly and make sure things are good and move on from there. We've won our brother back. It's great. It doesn't always work out that way, though. Uh, But more often than not, you're able to win your brother back and your relationship can be restored. And so for those instances when things don't work out and your brother is, is not willing to hear you out, after you've come to them privately, then and only then do we proceed to step two, which is found in verse 16. It says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Okay? The idea of not hearing doesn't necessarily mean not listening to someone. Okay? It carries with the idea of obedience towards that which was spoken. You say, "Hey, you did this, and I didn't like it." And it's not like they just say, "Okay, I listen to you, and everything's great." And that's not the idea. Okay, it's the idea that you listen to it, you respond to that, and you reconcile the, the situation. And so the idea is there's these the idea, idea, the idea being explained here is is that. If he doesn't listen, if he doesn't see things in the same manner, and if there's not a, a reconciliation, there's not a under, mutual understanding, then you go to step two. Okay? Verse 16 instructs us to go again to our brother, but this time to bring with us one or two witnesses. Okay? Jesus, in his instruction, he actually quoted from the Old Testament law, found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 that states, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And Jewish law required that there be more than one witness when uh, accusations were brought before uh, in a, in a uh, civil matter, that they needed to have more than just my word against your word. Okay, We had to have at least another Witness that was there to testify uh, of to the truth and the facts of the matter. Okay? The purpose for bringing witnesses with you to confront a sinning brother was so that, like a witness in court, okay, someone would be able to testify to the words that were shared and give a true accounting of the event. Okay? Bringing one or two witnesses should not, I repeat, should not... Be simply getting some friends together to have them support you and put the other person down. Okay? That's not what you should be doing when gathering your witnesses. Hey, buddies, let's go talk to this guy together. We're going to really show... That's not what this is telling you to do. Okay, Bringing... Uh, 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 your friends and, and people that are just going to see the same, that's not a really good witness, right? They're, they're not going to be valued in court. And they're going to be like, well, that's your buddy. You know? and of course he's going to side with you. And, and oftentimes it, it, it makes, can make the matter worse because the person feels like they're being ganged up on. It's like, oh, you just brought your friends, and you know, there's not uh, a fair witness. Okay? So Jesus isn't saying go gang up on your brother if he doesn't listen to you the first time. Okay. In fact, I would recommend trying to bring with you someone that can be seen as impartial, a spiritually mature brother or sister, someone that is well respected by both people involved in the situation. Again, as at first, the goal is always to gain your brother back. Okay? But if he still will not listen to you or, or the witness that you've been brought, that's been brought then Jesus gives instructions on what to do next. Okay, step three. Okay, The third step in confronting a brother that has sinned against you involves getting the church involved. In verse 17, it says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. The word used for church here is e- ecclesia uh, in the Greek, and, and later on in the New Testament, it's used to refer to the Christian church. Here, when Jesus is speaking, it the the Christian Church has yet to be established, and so when he says it bring it before the Church, the Ecclesia, uh, it's not the, sa- the the New Testament Christian Church that hasn't been founded yet. Okay, and so all of that word is used in the, that context uh, after the Book of Acts, Ecclesia, to re- to recognize the Christian Church. Here, the use of this word prior to the establishment of the New Testament Church referenced a congregation, an assembly of. Uh, the people for worship, for example, a local synagogue. Okay? And so, hey, you need to take it to the local synagogue, uh, the the church, the Jewish church uh, that uh, was there and established. Okay? Once the New Testament church was established, these these principles and they pra- these practices, they, they transferred over to the church. And so when we say the ecclesia, you need to go to the ecclesia, we know, yeah, that means the New Testament church, that means us. Uh, the church body. And so um, it was a practice that was established and start within the Jewish community, but transferred into the New Testament church as well. And again, the hope for bringing the church into the matter is to gain your brother. That the brother will listen and repent from his sin. Now, some of you may be wondering, how exactly does the matter get brought before the church? How does that look? Uh, like, uh, do we send out a, a mass email on our email distribution list? Um, do we we print out the details in our church bulletin? Uh, do we demand the brother's presence, make him stand up here before everyone? That, that may be how some churches do it, okay? Uh, but I don't believe that is what is implied here, and that is uh, not how I have been discipled in regards to church discipline and how it's to be taken out. In that time... Each synagogue had synagogue rulers that helped to judge both matters of religion as well as civil matters and civil interests. And so the idea, to me, what this means is that the matters brought before the church leadership, the, the people that were in charge of ruling the synagogue, you're to bring that situation to them and explain it to them and have them kind of be as a judge, a determiner, people that are uh, spiritually mature, that would know the word, be able to say, yes you are in sin because of the word of god tells us this at this verse this chapter and so brother you are in sin and you need to repent from that or or perhaps it's the opposite. And, and we realize that, hey, He really hasn't f- sinned against you. And let me show you why He hasn't sinned against you. Because this is what the Scriptures tell us. And so the idea is that you're going not before uh, everybody in the whole entire church, but that you're going to the church leaders that are spiritually mature, that would be able to uh, discern, yes, there has been an offense that's been committed, and there needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be repentance. Okay? Okay. To me, that is what is meant when it says, take it to the church. There are times, okay, there are times when sin is to be openly rebuked in front of all, okay? Uh, but I believe that is when dealing with an elder within the church, okay, involved in sin. 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 and 20 clearly tells us if there's some, an elder in the church, we're talking church leadership that is in sin, you need to bring him up in front of everyone and, and rebuke him openly. Okay, but we're not talking about an elder in this situation. We're talking about a brother. Okay? And so I believe it's different. Okay? We're not going to send out an email distribution list to everybody in the church saying, hey, this is the situation this guy sinned against his brother. Okay? That's not how it's going to work. But we're going to bring it to the church leadership. The situation is going to be discussed and, and decided upon. And if further action is needed, then the church leadership will know about that action. And sometimes it's warranted that the body would be given uh, some kind of an announcement or recognition saying, hey, this is a situation, just be in prayer for our brother. We don't need to go into the details. Because what it ends up happening is that it just ends up causing gossip and, and other sins and things like can also cause division within the church. And so it's a means to protect. We leave it within the church leadership. Okay? All right. Once the situation has been brought before the church and they are able to judge uh, based upon the testimony of those involved and the testimony of the witnesses whether the brother is guilty of sin and in need of repentance, then that brother would be requested, if found guilty, to repent and be reconciled. If the brother does not listen to the church and will not be obedient to its directive to repent, then the situation is brought to the fourth and final step. The fourth step involves excommunication from the church. Okay? Removal from the church. We remove the unrepentant brother from the fellowship within the church. Okay? When Jesus said, let him, be, uh, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, the implication was you know, that we didn't have anything to do with them. A, a heathen is someone that's uh, unconnected with the people and the God of salvation. Oftentimes the title of heathen was used synonymously with the idea of being a Gentile. Gentiles were were people that were not uh, of Jewish descent or Jewish faith. And and tax collectors, well, they they were hated by most all of Jews because they were seen as betrayers of the Jewish community. They were seen as thieves amongst the Jewish community. They were working for Rome, collecting taxes from among their fellow countrymen working off of a commission based upon the taxes that they were able to collect. And so oftentimes, tax collectors were accused of collecting more that was re- than what was required. Because the more that they got, the more they got to keep. It was based upon what they brought in, you get this certain portion of it. And so they were despised. They were greatly looked down upon. They were definitely not welcome within the Jewish community. Okay, and so we the idea there is that, hey, we don't have anything to do with them now, let me clarify something that does not mean that we no longer love them. It does not mean that we no longer have a desire for them to be reconciled. The goal, even in excommunication, is to have your brother gained and to have him reconciled, okay. The, the desired outcomes that the brother would realize the error of his way and turn back to the Lord and repent. In the letters to the church of Corinth, uh, we read of such an instance where excommunication was prescribed for a sinning brother. Okay? Paul wrote to the church, he instructed them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, he said, "...deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If a brother does not want to repent, but desires to continue in willful sin, the idea here presented is that we need to let him live in the world for, for a while, and, and with the hope that he gets so sick of it, that his flesh would be destroyed, but that his spirit would be saved. Okay. Hopefully, when he hits rock bottom, he's able to realize the foolishness of his ways and then repent and return to the Lord. The goal is still reconciliation. The hope for excommunication is that there would be... I'm missing out on the fellowship. I'm missing out on the blessings of fellowship with the Lord and with the body of Christ, and it's ruining my life, and I've gone down the spiral, and I need the Lord I need to repent. That's the idea. That's the goal still, even in excommunication. Why is it necessary, some ask, to remove them from the church? Uh, you know, some people think, well, you know, hey, they're, they're obviously in need of help, so why remove them from a source of help? That doesn't make sense. And I want to give to you three reasons why I think this is a very necessary thing to do. First, one reason is that it serves as a radical means. To drive the unrepentant sinner to repentance. Okay? Like we just talked about, the desire is that the flesh would be destroyed, but the spirit would be saved. Okay? It serves, number two, it serves as a means to purify the church. Okay? To sanctify it, to preserve it from evil and from heresy. And basically it protects the church from being filled with a bunch of hypocrites. You know, many in the world use that as an excuse to why they don't go to church and and if the church was willing to exercise church discipline in the manner prescribed here then then maybe we wouldn't have so many hypocrites within the church maybe there wouldn't be so many people that are living in sin if we were willing to say that's not right and and that needs to go or you need to go and and so it helps to purify the church it helps to sanctify and preserve it and third it also serves as a warning to others. Okay? To instill diligence to the means of grace, you know, that they would realize, hey, grace has been afforded, grace has been extended, and if we just would receive it, it's there uh, if we're willing to repent. But not only that, it also uh, instills a healthy fear of God. Okay? When those in the church see that people are held accountable for their life in Christ, it will hopefully create within them a healthy fear of sin and the consequences of unrepentance. Church discipline, you guys, is never a pretty thing. And it often can cause hurt within the body. And so we want to keep these things in mind as we consider discipline. Discipline in a brother or sister in sin. Remember that the goal is always, always, always reconciliation. We must speak the truth in love. And we must follow the four-step procedure Jesus gives to us here. To go and tell the individual the fault that was committed privately. If he doesn't listen, then we go to him with one or two more that we can serve as witnesses. If he doesn't listen, then we go to him with, uh, or we take the matter before the church. If he still doesn't listen, then they are to be removed from fellowship. You know, I, I hope that we don't ever have to go through this as a church body. But I realize that if we do, this is how it should be handled. And this is how I will look to handle it, to follow this outline. Okay? And unfortunately, I have to tell you that I have done this before and had to be a part of this before in previous churches. And it's not fun. And it causes a lot of heartache. And a lot of, you know, it's just really difficult. And... uh We need to realize the seriousness of sin, okay? And we need to be willing to confront brothers and sisters who have sinned and and look out to them, reach out to them with a desire of reconciliation and to lovingly win our brother or sister back. Let's continue. Verse 18 through 20, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be given for them or excuse me, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is the the second time that we've come across this principle of binding and loosing in our, our study of Matthew. If you guys recall, if you've been with us for a while, recall that just a few chapters back in Matthew chapter 16, we read of how Jesus, he had told Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And when we studied that portion, you may remember that we noted how the phrases binding and loosing, they were very familiar phrases to the Jewish people, for the rabbis. Often spoke of them when speaking about things that would be forbidden or things that would be permitted. Uh, if something was bound, it was you know you're not allowed to do that. If something was loosed, it's yes you can do that. Okay? We also noted that Peter was not given uh, some sort of special power to make heaven do our bidding. Like oh I'm going to do this and it's going to be done that way in heaven, and that we have this special power. Uh, that's not what was happening either. Okay here in verse uh, 18 of Matthew chapter 18 it's the same thing okay it's not intended that we are manipulating or heaven or uh, bid, making heaven do our bidding okay looking at the original language we find that the wording suggests that it wasn't a power to force things to happen in heaven but rather a responsibility to ensure things that they do are, are things that they uh, don 't allow to be happen are things that are done in heaven and things that are not allowed to happen in heaven. when we looked at it back in Matthew sixteen, I read from you young 's young 's literal translation, and I want to do that again to you in this verse because I think it helps to understand uh, the idea here uh, in matthew eighteen eighteen the young 's literal translation it says this. Verily I say to you, whatever things ye may bind upon the earth shall be, having having been bound in the heavens. And whatever things ye may loose on the earth shall be, having been loosed in the heavens. And so we see verse 18, it speaks of not a power to change heaven, but a responsibility to follow heaven's decree. A responsibility to ensure that the things that they bind and loose, forbid or allow, need to be the same things that are bound and loosed in heaven. And, and, and really this ties right in with the context of the church having the responsibility of holding a sinning brother accountable to the laws of the Lord. Okay? They are to bind and loose things that are bound and loosed in heaven. If the brother's doing something he's bound from doing in heaven, and that's a sin, Okay? Then we have a responsibility, the disciples there had a responsibility to bind him from doing that here on earth as well. Okay? And I believe that we share in that same responsibility today. That we need to help keep people accountable to following the Lord. Okay? And that's what is talked about. That's why you go to the brother and you say, hey look, this is, this is sin. And, and you can't be doing that. You're binding it because it's bound in heaven. And so that's the idea here, the following along with the context. We have a responsibility as a church, as, as believers in the Lord, to help keep our brothers and sisters accountable. Now, we do it within the context. Remember, we're always not doing it because we want to bash our brothers, because we want to say, ooh, you're a sinner, and, and make them feel bad. We want to reconcile. We want to do it in love. Uh, and so we always have to keep that in context, okay? Verses 19 and 20, we want to do our best to keep these verses in the context of what's being discussed as well. Many people have quoted these verses completely removed from their context, thinking that they mean one thing when that's really not what was meant. And so I want to explain verses 19 and 20. The context of verses 19 and 20 is church discipline. Right, that's what we've been talking about church discipline the steps to follow towards trying to gain your brother and the idea of uh, permitting or forbidding certain actions saying that's sin you can't be doing that or yeah you can do this okay verse 19 starts with again it indicates to us that Jesus is responding or excuse me repeating a recent idea or notion and then he speaks about if to in verse 19 And then 2 or 3 in verse 20. What idea or notion has he recently discussed that regarded two or three people? Well, we look back and we see that it was the idea of two or three witnesses agreeing and and testifying against the actions of a sinning brother. And, And so what Jesus is saying here is that the father would grant the request of two or more who gathered together in Christ's name, and they're in agreement on disciplining an erring brother. That is what verses 19 and 20 are teaching us. Many, however, quote verses 19 and 20 with the connection to the idea that if there are two or more people gathered together who agree on something and they ask God for it in prayer, then Jesus will be present and God will answer their request. Okay? Here's the truth I want to say about prayer from other portions of Scripture. 1 okay? John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this, Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. John 14, verses 13 and 14 says, And whatever you ask in My name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. You see, the the truth that we try to claim regarding uh, the idea or topic of prayer, when quoting from verses 19 and 20, that if two or more people agree in prayer that God will grant it, it really falls short of the real promises that we have in prayer. Do you realize that you don't need to have two or more people to agree in prayer to get the Lord to answer your prayer? He answers our prayers not based upon the number of people with us, but based upon if we pray in His name and according to His will. Also, do you realize that, that even with just you, the Lord is present? Okay? His Spirit dwells in each of us, and we don't need two or more in order for the Lord's presence to be there. And so oftentimes we like to quote 19 and 20, and not in a bad way, right? It's not uh, you know, malicious. But I, I just want to say we're, we're claiming, trying to claim promises that fall short of the real true promises that we have. And I don't want to discourage you from gathering together in prayer. Group prayer is is dynamic. It's something that uh, is to be encouraged. There's power, uh, I believe, when we gather together in agreement in prayer. We see it exemplified and encouraged throughout the book of Acts uh, as the early church daily gathered together. And, And so I'm not trying to discourage gathering together with prayer. I'm just simply stating that verses 19 and 20 aren't the best verses to use when claiming promises about prayer. Okay? The topic of these verses is, is church discipline. And it's not about prayer. Uh, and so just to, to put that out there, uh, so we might be mindful of that, oh, that, that's really not what that's talking about. Maybe we should learn some other verses to quote when uh, talking about getting together and, and praying and the promises that we have and the victories that we have in prayer. All right, verse 21 says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter here was was thinking things through. You can tell that he's thinking about what Jesus said regarding uh, what he had just shared about how to deal with a brother that sinned against you. Peter's thinking was, well, what if I go to my brother and he does repent? And and there's no need to go to step two or step three or or step four. Uh, How many times should I forgive my brother if he sins uh, against me, but then he repents? How many times should I forgive him? And and I think Peter was trying to sound super spiritual with his suggested answer. Up to seven times, you know? Uh, According to rabbinical teaching of that day, Jews were responsible for giving someone up to three times. And then after that, they were no longer required to forgive someone uh, uh, an account. And so they taught, three times you need to forgive someone, but if they do it again, you don't need to forgive them. Okay, and they based that upon different, a couple different examples from Scripture. Uh, and it's kind of loosely based. I don't think it's, well, it's obviously not accurate. But that was the rabbinical teaching of that day. And, and so Peter more than doubles what the standard of the day was. And so I, I do think that he was like... Up to seven times, you know, like, the, and I and I wonder, I wonder if Peter was expecting another. Oh, blessed are you, Simon Bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Remember back in Matthew 16, and you know when he said, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God," you know, seven times, right, Lord? And, and I wonder, I I wish I could see the surprise upon Peter's face when Jesus responded, not seven times but up to 70 times 7, okay, 490 times we're to forgive our brother. Understand, you guys, that Jesus was not actually trying to set an actual limit. I think that goes without saying, okay? It wasn't as if Jesus was saying, keep a journal, okay, and keep a record throughout the years, tally all of those forgivenesses up, and then once they break 490, cut them off. You know, that that's not what he was saying, Okay? And I was talking to a friend, and I said, I'm really glad my wife's not really good at math because I think I'd be close to getting that 490 already. Okay? No one would be able to keep track of that many different offenses from one brother, and that was the point that Jesus is trying to make. Okay? You need to forgive your brother as many times as it takes, up to 490 times. Okay? And no one's going to. You just realize, I just need to keep on forgiving him. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus said, Take heed to yourselves, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he, re- if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day he returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him, is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it teaches us that love does not keep a record of wrongs. And 1 Peter 4, 8 tells us that love will cover a multitude of sins. The only way that you and I will be able to continually forgive our brother after repeated offenses is through love. We need God's love in order to be able to forgive someone that many times. We cannot do it on our own. And and, and not just any kind of love, okay? The kind of love that, that's what's needed is the kind of love that's often associated with the love of God, that agape love. That's the kind of love that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Peter chapter 4. God's love is not based upon our deeds or our repentance. God loved us even while we are yet sinners, Romans 5, 8 tells us. God's love is not based upon what we do, but upon who God is. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. It's not based upon what we do. And we need that kind of love in order to forgive our brothers. We are unable to love like the Lord on our own, and we need Him to fill us with His loves that we're able to continually forgive our brother that sins against us. Do not try and do it on your own; you will fall so short. Okay? Usually, after the second or third time, like, no, you're really not sorry. I, I, I've done that before, right? You need your kids, right? They like fighting and they say, "Oh, I'm sorry." You're not sorry. You know, we need God's love in order to love like this, and in order to fulfill this commandment to forgive our brother up to four hundred and ninety times. Just that idea of just continual forgiveness. Verse twenty-three through thirty-four, Jesus speaks a parable. We're going to look at this uh, all in one chunk. Okay, Jesus says, "Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants." And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw that had, what had been done, they were very grieved. And came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. We'll stop right there. After telling his disciples that they needed to forgive their brother up to 490 times, he then shared a parable about the kingdom of heaven describing the power of forgiveness. The parable involves three main characters a servant, a king, which was his master, so he's referred to as the king and master both times, and then it involves a fellow servant. Okay. And the parable begins by explaining that the king wanted to settle his accounts, and as he did so, he came across a servant that owed him 10,000 talents. Okay. A talent was a unit of weight, uh, and also used in money. And although the exact value is not known, one talent was to believe a very uh, considerable amount of money. Okay. People today estimate that one talent was equal to approximately $1,000 today's money. And this man owed 10,000 talents. Okay, we're talking about a debt estimated at about $10 million in today's world. Okay? This guy was in big time deep trouble. When the master found out that the servant could not pay the debt, he ordered that the servant be sold along with his wife, his children, and all of his possessions. And that's when the servant fell down before the king, and he begged him to be patient with him. That he would be able to pay the debt if he could just be patient. In all reality, there was no way this man would be able to pay off this debt. And the economy of that day, I was reading in one commentary, they suggested that a man would have to work 20 years to earn just one talent. And so there was no way that this man would ever even come close to being able to pay the debt that he owed within his lifetime. There's just no way uh, he'd be able to do that. And after hearing the servant cry out for patience, the master did something incredible. He was moved with compassion. And he forgave him his debt completely. The king was an incredibly compassionate man. He not only didn't force the man to be sold along with his family and possessions, but he actually freed him from the debt completely. Could you imagine that happening today? Okay. Someone that's in debt to someone for about ten million dollars, and the creditor just says, "Ah, eh, it's okay. Just I'm going to cancel it. I'll let you go free." <laughs> I don't think that's happening anytime uh, soon. That would be amazing. Okay, the the forgiven servant, he goes out, no doubt happy, relieved, uh, rejoicing perhaps. Uh, but he comes across a fellow servant that owes him some money, one hundred denarii. Now, a denarii was about a one day's fair wage. Okay? In comparison to a talent, a talent was said to be about uh, worth 6,000 denarii. One talent. Six, about 6,000 denarii. Okay? The fellow servant owed the forgiven servant 100 denarii. Okay? Now again, just for comparison's sake, the the debt that the forgiven servant owed, if we were to look at it not just in 10,000 talents, we were to equate it into denarii, would be about 60 million denarii that he was forgiven. Are you following along? He was forgiven 60 million denarii's worth, and this guy owes him 100 denarii. You would think... That this man who had just been forgiven such an incredible debt would be willing to look past such a, a infinitely smaller, incredibly minute uh, amount of debt compared to what he was just forgiven. But no. Verse 28 tells us that the man laid hands on him, took him by the throat, you know, <laughs> you know type of a thing, right? And, and he demanded that he pay him what he owed him. Interestingly, the fellow servant, he replied in the same exact manner as the forgiven servant. It says the same exact phrase. He says, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And you would maybe think that hearing that same exact phrase maybe would trigger something in his memory of the situation with him and the king and, and cause him to, ooh, yeah, I just didn't said the same thing and that guy was compassionate toward me and, and maybe I'll be compassionate towards this man. But, but nothing of the sort happens. Instead, the servant had him thrown into prison until he could pay his debt in full. And now some of the other fellow servants saw that it happened and they were grieved. Okay? And they went and they told their master uh, what had taken place between the forgiven servant and his fellow servant. And the king then called the forgiven servant back to him, rebuked him, calling him a wicked servant and exhorting him that he should have given, forgiven his fellow servant the debt just as he had been forgiven his debt. The master then delivered the forgiven servant over to the torturers until he should pay all that he previously owed. Okay, remember that parables, I've said this a lot of times and I always repeat this when we look at a parable. Parables are earthly stories that convey heavenly truths. It's an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. The story here is very clear. The understanding behind the story is that the forgiven servant that was forgiven an unpayable debt. There's no way he'd be able to pay back this debt. Should have been willing to forgive a much smaller debt that was owed to him from a fellow servant. But because the man was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant, he was handed over to the torturers torturers, to be jailed and tortured until he could pay his debt. What then is the heavenly truth of this story? It's in our last verse, chapter 35. We get a key to it. Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Jesus gives us the heavenly truth here of this parable. He tells us that we need to be forgiving our brother because we have been forgiven such an incredible debt. God forgave us a debt that we could never pay. We ought to forgive others based upon the realization of how much we have been forgiven. Do you realize the the, the sin that you have been forgiven by the Lord does not compare to the sin that your brother has sinned against you or your sister that's sinned against you? I mean, we have to keep in mind all that we have been forgiven from. The, what the Lord has forgiven us from, and in so realizing that great debt that we were forgiven, we ought to be willing to. Well, okay, I'm going to forgive my brother, even though he sinned against me, and you know it made me wrong me. I felt bad, and I'm going to forgive him because I realize I'm in need of such a great. I was in need of such great, and I was forgiven, and so I want to extend that forgiveness. Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty-two states, "And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." Jesus also warns that we will fall into a similar fate as the unforgiving servant if we will not forgive. Okay? It's been said that the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we, Warren Risby says, if we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Have you ever met someone that was imprisoned by unforgiveness? They have allowed bitterness to take root in their heart as they have hold a grudge against someone. And you know what the crazy thing about this type of behavior is? Is that all that it does is it, it harms you. It usually has no effect on the person that you feel has wronged you. You're mad at someone, you're unforgiving, you're bitter towards them. They're not losing any sleep over that. You are. It is a, a, a terrible place. It is torturous. You will be tortured if you are not willing to have a forgiving heart. You will be tortured by bitterness. that g- This will destroy any work of grace and any work of forgiveness. We will be blinded to the great debt that we have been forgiven and we will be consumed by it. My brothers, my sisters, don't withhold forgiveness from your brothers. You've been forgiven an incredible debt. How petty of us to hold on to such small offenses in comparison to the great offenses that we have committed. We have sinned greatly. And we've been forgiven greatly. And we need to extend that forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. Amen?